a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, I welcome you to the show. My fellow wrong thinker, let us challenge the narrative. Let us revel in wrong think today. And by the way, I, I, I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, and I joke around about it a lot, but I want you to know, this is such a privilege to to be able to speak truth on a daily basis, um, not from the standpoint that I have cornered the market on truth or that I have all the answers. I clearly don't. But I, I love that I have the ability that... Um, I, how can I put this? I'll just put it, I'll put it the way that, that I think is most accurate, that, that God has provided a way for me to be one of those individuals given the opportunity to speak truth at a time where truth really needs to be spoken. And of course, it's not all my truth. I have wonderful resources, which I am very happy to share with you. If you haven't been to my website yet, thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find resources for wrong thinkers. And these are some of the different news aggregator sites, different commentary websites that I go to on pretty much a daily basis looking for good, solid, principled information. This isn't bumper sticker slogans. This isn't the latest conspiracy theory. It's, it's not all the uh, uh, supermarket tabloid kind of information. What, what, has to, what has to be present for it to make the cut is that it has to be based in some kind of principle. And if it aligns with the principles and practices of liberty, guess what? That's what I'm all about. So here's what's on tap for today. Uh, by the way, thanks to our sponsors, Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, Jeff Staples Real Estate, as well as the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being a sponsor of the show. We're going to be talking today about a new ride-sharing safety bill that Congress apparently has been uh, working on, hastily passed, and uh, we're going to learn that this, uh, I, it, look, hey, we're just trying to make things safer for you, but what it's really going to do is it's going to uh, set the bureaucrats up with uh, greater power, greater authority at the expense of businesses, drivers, and riders. Sound familiar? California, we're looking your direction. Also, we'll talk a little bit about how, uh, look, I, I get it. There is, there's fatigue from all the, uh, you know, scary stuff going on out there. So when someone warns about tyranny or authoritarianism, such as uh, I'm prone to do, I get it that sometimes that can come off as, well, Brian, come on, you're just doing a pretty good chicken little impression. But I'll tell you where I really sit up and pay attention is when I hear people who have actually lived under genuine totalitarianism. This is particularly like people who've lived under communism, former residents of the, the Soviet Union. When they tell me, Wow, this looks a lot like what we were living under, or this looks like the direction you're headed in the direction of of what we lived under under Soviet uh, communist Soviet rule. I tend to sit up and take notice because they're not just uh, you know saying something to win political points; they're speaking from experience. Got a great commentary from Rod Dreher explaining how, in our time right now, 
even though it's the left that's warning Trump is about to impose a fascist police state on us. Literally Hitler, they say. But Rod Dreher explains, no, actually the most likely source of totalitarian tyranny today is the political left. They're doing exactly what they are accusing their opponents of doing. Also on tap, there seems to be a lot of revolutionary revolutionary fervor in the street these days. What makes me say that? Oh, I don't know, the burning buildings, the slogans, the uh, violence, you know, just... Little hints like that. Yeah, maybe I'm the only one picking up on them. Anyway, Bradley Berzer shares a fascinating take on 10 conditions necessary for revolution. Now, this isn't just for America today, but I'll tell you what. As I went through that list of 10 conditions, I went, wow, (laughs) we're hitting on a lot of these. Maybe we should pay attention. We'll spend a little bit of time today talking about uh, COVID-19 specifically, and this is good news, Lovers of freedom owe a great debt to Sweden for showing the world that lockdowns are not the only way to deal with a pandemic. Sweden has destroyed the case for resorting to extreme measures like lockdowns in order to address the virus. Now the big question is, why aren't more of our leaders paying attention to that? Also found a great commentary from Thomas L. Knapp uh, asking the question, is COVID-19 panic becoming the new state religion? I know and even, even Joe Biden in the debate the other night, well, I believe the science, and I believe the scientists. <laughs> science, science. But they are so dogmatic. There is kind of a religious tinge to, uh, you know, that, uh, that strict orthodoxy that must be followed. That doesn't seem very scientific. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about Congress's new rideshare safety bill, which could totally ruin ridesharing. This is an article by Satya Marar, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. He says, your ride home could get more expensive thanks to a new bipartisan bill hastily passed by the House of Representatives last month. It's called Sammy's Law, named after Samantha Josephson, a North Carolina college student who was tragically murdered after getting into a car that she mistook for her Uber during a night out. And this bill would empower bureaucrats at the expense of businesses, drivers, and riders alike. Now, he says, what happened to Sammy Josephson is truly horrific. And the bill was drafted with the noble intent of protecting rideshare passengers and instituting regulations to promote safety. However, he says, the legislation goes far beyond that. And it would drive up costs, stifle innovation, and leave drivers and riders alike worse off with little or no safety benefit. So far, Congress has simply failed to pay attention to the unintended and long-term consequences of Sammy's law. So this bill, which is now before the Senate, is set to create a 15-member council in the Department of Transportation to propose future rideshare regulations for adoption by the Secretary of the Department without the need for legislation or debate. Well, that sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Such Washington, D.C.-based bodies operate under perverse incentives to over-regulate regardless of the costs they impose. And he says it's no wonder why. Their very existence is premised on the supposed problem of insufficient regulation. Yet, he says, independent of any government mandate, rideshare companies have made voluntary strides to improve safety in response to rider concerns. And I just have to ask this as an aside, why wouldn't they? 
It's in their interest to provide the best possible experience for their customers. They want those customers to come back. If it feels like it's going to be unsafe, they know they're not going to come back. You don't need regulators hovering over your shoulder and breathing down your neck to make that happen. And again, as, as the author here, uh, Satya, Satya Marar, points out, these, uh, these self-imposed regulations often rival or even exceed those once imposed on the taxi industry. We're talking about things like insurance policies, criminal background checks for drivers, a rating system for, drive, for riders that removes drivers with poor ratings, emergency safety features built into the apps themselves, and rider access to drivers' names, pictures, car models, and license plate numbers for ease and confidence in identification. Now, these companies are responding appropriately to their riders' concerns through self-regulation. In other words, there is simply no need for bureaucratic advisory bodies to take the reins. In addition, advisory bodies and politically appointed positions, like the Transportation Secretary, are prone to be swayed by vested interests. The Secretary and other bureaucrats who could be influenced by groups like the taxi lobby or large companies that are more capable of responding and adapting to regulations that they often help write than smaller competitors have the power to make decisions that would affect startup companies, drivers, and ordinary folks who just want an affordable ride home. This kind of cronyism exists within the government, and it's something we should be seeing less of, not more. And then to make matters worse, the bill provides a generous 12-year sunset period for the 15-member advisory council it proposes and allows for this body to be made permanent through a single sign-off by the Transportation Secretary. Well, isn't that convenient? The bill's key requirements also demand that ride-sharing companies implement a verification system that would require drivers to confirm a four-digit PIN number sent to riders prior to starting a trip. Now, that might seem like a positive step towards safety improvement through a verification system, but what if a passenger's phone runs out of battery before they memorize the code? Being stranded could inadvertently put a rider at increased risk of harm. But again, you know, this is, this is the attitude of government as well. But if we say that it makes you safer, then it, it must make you safer. Yeah, except when it doesn't. We'll come back to this article in just a few moments. Look, I, I use Uber and Lyft infrequently. Those of you who travel more may have a, a little bit stronger sense of having skin in the game. But I think they can self-regulate just fine. I think they've done a marvelous job so far. Can we politely say, thank you, government squeegee man, but no thanks. We don't need your help. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So we are talking about uh, a new rideshare safety bill that's passed the U.S. House of Representatives. It now is before the Senate. And it's called Sammy's Law, after a young woman named Samantha who apparently was murdered after getting into a car that she mistook for her, uh, I think, her Uber ride. A tragic story, to say the least, but not necessarily something that requires the creation of, what is it, a 12 or 15-member a 15-member advisory council to come up with regulations for rideshare companies. 
talk about, you know, a solution in search of a problem. Wow. And as the author of this article points out, furthermore, the idea of, uh, you know, of, of imposing things like a PIN number to be sent to riders prior to starting a trip. That's a feature that some companies like Uber already have incorporated on an opt-in basis for their passengers, who are especially concerned for their own safety. So why then would a mandate be necessary? And he asks about, you know, why, why would they need to take that extra step and just make, well, if, if a little bit's good, then I guess we make it mandatory for everybody and a lot is better. He also points out the bill requires that drivers have more prominent markers on their vehicle to identify them as approved rideshare drivers. But this ignores the fact that rideshare impersonators can simply use similar markings. Sammy's law, he says, was inspired by an unspeakable tragedy that will hopefully never happen again. And perhaps that's why it has managed to pass through the House of Representatives with little attention or scrutiny from the media or politicians themselves. But he says the bill deserves more scrutiny. No matter how well-intentioned it is, there's no reason why a tragedy should become a Trojan horse that allows the regulatory and bureaucratic state to creep into our lives, stifle innovative industries, and take money out of our pockets. That will help no one at all. Again, this is Satya Marar, a Young Voices contributor and director of policy at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com. All right, moving on. Let's see what else we've got going on here today. Let's talk about... uh, Let's talk about the most likely source of authoritarianism today. And, and you know, I, I hesitate to, to sound the alarm, if you will, just because I don't want people to think, oh, man, he's trying to make us afraid. But I, I really believe that uh, there, is, there is a growing sense of authoritarianism today, and it's not entirely from the political left, but that seems to be one of the sources that... Uh, that has the strongest toehold. And we're not necessarily talking purely in, you know, political sense or purely in a governmental sense. Rod Dreher, writing for the New York Post, says left-wing hysterics with major media platforms have for years been shrieking that President Trump is about to install a fascist dictatorship any minute. Meanwhile, unheard immigrants from the Soviet bloc warn that totalitarian tyranny is actually emerging from the left and Americans are too naive to see it coming. Now, he says it sounds crazy, right? In fact, he says, I thought so when I first heard it from an elderly woman who spent six years as a political prisoner under Czechoslovakia's Marxist regime. But he says, the more I talked to people like her, the more I came to see them as canaries in a gold mine, or a coal mine, rather. Their message is the same. What's happening in America today reminds me of life under communism. And by the way, just as an aside, I have heard this myself from individuals who have lived under communist rule. Now, Rod Dreher says it's hard for Americans to see it, in part because our idea of totalitarianism comes from Orwell's 1984 or Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. But statism or the Stalinism 2.0 is not what the old dissidents predict. In fact, they point out that the left in power is achieving totalitarian goals, not simply obedience, but the internalization of left-wing ideology by much softer means. And he's got a point here. 
He says, who needs the gulag when you can compel obedience by threatening someone's job or destroy her reputation on social media? Why bother with the secret police when the masses already hand over detailed personal information to Google and other woke capitalist behemoths via smartphones and laptops? He warns the coming soft totalitarianism may well unify the government, major corporations, the media, and leading institutions of civil society, which will collaborate to suppress dissent and coerce conformity. In other words, the United States could one day have its own version of China's high-tech social credit system. Those who resisted Soviet communism urge us to prepare now for resistance while we still can. And Rod Dreher points out the shocking truth is we Americans are living in a pre-totalitarian situation. In 1951, Hannah Arendt published her landmark study, The Origins of Totalitarianism, in which she studied the conditions that led both Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany to embrace totalitarianism. It makes for a sobering read in our present circumstances. And Rod Dreher says, among the signs, loneliness and social atomization. He says, totalitarian movements, according to Arendt, are mass organizations of atomized, isolated individuals. And what prepares men for totalitarian domination in the non-totalitarian world is the fact that loneliness, once a borderline experience, usually suffered in certain marginal social conditions like old age, has become an everyday experience of the ever-growing masses of our century. Next, there's loss of faith in hierarchies and institutions. Rod Dreher says loneliness is is politically significant, rather, because it leaves the masses hungry for a sense of community. Now, in a healthy society, an individual could find fellowship and common purpose through institutions of civil society, political parties, churches, civic clubs, sports leagues, and the like. In contemporary America, these have largely withered or become politicized. Another condition is transgressiveness for its own sake. In both pre-Bolshevik Russia and pre-Nazi Germany, elites reveled in acts of rebellion that made fun of traditions and standards, moral and otherwise. They immersed themselves in baseness and called it liberation. They also took pleasure in overturning institutions and established practices for the sake of outsiders. I'm sorry, but I have to say it. Drag Queen Story Hour? Hmm. Seems to fit the bill there. Hannah Arendt wrote, The members of the elite did not object at all to paying a price the destruction of civilization, for the fun of seeing how those who had been excluded unjustly in the past forced their way into it. Her words apply with eerie prescience to the Black Lives Matter upheaval in the streets and in elite institutions. And then there's also susceptibility to propaganda and ideology. In pre-totalitarian nations, wrote Arendt, hating respectable society was so narcotic that the elites were willing to accept monstrous forgeries in historiography for the sake of striking back at those who, in their view, had excluded the underprivileged and oppressed from the memory of mankind. It's like she anticipated the New York Times fraudulent 1619 project. Rod Dreher says America is sleepwalking into soft totalitarianism. If we ignore the prophetic voices of those who survived communism, we deserve what we get. The best defense ordinary people can mount, said Solzhenitsyn, is to refuse to stay silent in the face of ideological lies. 
If we hope to defend our freedom, we have to start by rejecting a comforting lie we tell ourselves that it can't happen here. I think this is pretty good stuff. I don't always agree with with Rod Dreher, but I think he is right on on this one. And I specifically think if you have the opportunity to talk to someone who has lived under actual communist rule, you should take the opportunity to talk with them. It may be one of the most enlightening conversations you have. And it doesn't mean they hate America. Sometimes people who've actually uh, been through the uh, meat grinder, so to speak, are a little bit better at... uh, spotting when trouble is approaching. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. And once again, thank you for accessing this program. I know there are innumerable choices and voices out there that uh, you could be turning to to get a little better feel of what's going on in the world. The fact that you would spend some time with me means a lot. And, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks for thanks for joining me as we revel in wrong think. So, uh, yeah, there's a little revolutionary fervor out there in the street. I don't know if you've noticed this, but, uh, you know, a lot of cities have been on fire for, well, over 100 days. And, yeah, there's there's definitely a revolutionary sense to what uh, groups like BLM and Antifa are, are either doing or openly calling for. But have you ever thought about what the conditions are that are necessary for a revolution to take place? I think back to the very first political science class that I took. Holy cow, a long time ago, probably 32 years ago or more. Anyway, I learned a thing called expectation gap. And the expectation gap, as as I understood it, was when what the people expect, whether it's, you know, clean water or, you know, being able to buy enough food to feed themselves or toilet paper, whatever the case may be, when the gap between what they expect and what they are actually experiencing grows too large, that is where there is danger of a revolution. But apparently one of the 20th century's most astute observers of society, a sociologist, historian, and man of letters by the name of Robert Nisbet, offered up 10 conditions of revolution. And Bradley Berzer wrote about this for intellectualtakeout.org. Now, by this he meant not what we want to label Revolution, which is cheap and easy to do, but what really constitutes revolution. And apparently Robert Nisbet, Nisbet rather, wrote these after years of observing, experiencing, and digesting the student rebellions of 1964 and ni- to 1970, which he pronounced not a revolution, but a middle-class temper tantrum. The students who revolted, he understood, were too soft to be true revolutionaries. Now, black Americans had legitimate grievances in the 1960s, And they might very well be on the verge of legitimate revolution, but not the white middle-class kids who played revolutionary in the 1960s. Whatever damage they might have caused society in the short and long run, they did so as spoiled children, not as revolutionaries. So according to Nisbet, what are the conditions of real and true revolution? 
Well, he laid them out in his typical succinct fashion, fashion rather, and at times rather blatantly relied on the language and ideas of the great Anglo-Irish statesman Edmund Burke. First, a real revolution must follow a dramatic change in the economic or societal order. Something drastic has to have happened, though it might very well have happened so gradually in the social frame that it went unrecognized as an event that can be defined and understood in isolation. Second, authority or the understanding of authority must collapse, leading to, if not a breakdown, at least a confusion of authority. Now, by authority, Nisbet meant not power, which is presumed and assumed, but a mutual, consensual understanding of respect both given and earned. So an example would be a professor who earned the respect of his students and thus has established his authority by teaching well, by knowing his subject, and by treating the students with dignity. Opposed to this as an example of power would be the professor who wields grades over his students as a weapon. Third, society must have become relatively recently wealthy or wealthier than it had been. One of the most tragic mistakes observers, historians, sociologists, political theorists, and social commentators have made was claiming that a revolution occurs when a people are in poverty. No, revolutions occur when the people have recently left a condition of poverty and have seen what affluence is possible. Nisbet argued there must be enough feel of possessions, enough sense of affluence, to make the sense of what, of what hasn't been achieved a galling one. See, that's that expectation gap that I was referring to. Fourth, and deeply related to the third point, society must have recently liberalized, thus allowing those recently freed to see what is still possible to be gained. It is the liberalization of the old regime that makes possible, at one and the same time, the feeling of relative deprivation of freedom and the means of doing something about it, Nisbet explained. Fifth, society must have become intensely politicized, witnessing the political sphere swamp and dominate all other spheres of existence. As such, issues have become nearly Manachian in their division of good and evil, just and unjust. All right, yeah, I know, most of us ticked that one off of our checklist. Okay, we definitely have that. Sixth, sixth rather, the intellectual elites, having accepted the politicization of society and perhaps even having precipitated it, must see the opportunities <clears throat> a, pol a politicized and centralized power structure presents to them, and they must eagerly seize it. Seventh, some catalyst must take place which throws intellectuals, politicos, and a substantial number of revolutionaries to passionate extremes. There must be some precipitating incident or event, Nisbet claimed, one that while in no way necessarily related to internal conditions, succeeds in bringing passion to ever greater boil and with this potential mobilization of numbers. I know, the name George Floyd kind of comes to mind, doesn't it? That certainly seemed to be the catalyst for so much of what we've seen happen over the last few months. Eighth, while revolutions will never attract the mass of people, they must be able to mobilize morally a small cadre of crusaders to mock the norms of a society. The atmosphere of idealism, however bogus it may be in terms of underlying realities, must form giving blanket to the inevitable harshnesses, the inescapable violence, the occasional atrocity 
of revolutionary behavior. Ninth, armed with morality, again, however, false and hypocritical, the revolutionaries must paint an idyllic picture of their future, a progressivism that leads to some sort of utopian-like qualities. The more the revolutionaries can show the corruption of the present state of existence, the brighter their own outlook can be. After all, Nisbet understood as it is always difficult, nay impossible, to deny the existence of corruption and hypocrisy in some degree, at least around one, such as the human condition. And finally, tenth, there must already exist a certain amount of guilt within and among members of the ruling class. This must be something that at least tangentially is te- at least tangentially obvious and exploitable by those who will be revolting. How many politicians did you see take a knee following the death of George Floyd? Okay, let that, uh, let that image burn itself into your mind. Bradley Berzer says, Given the events of the moment in this era of confusion in American history, one cannot help but wonder if 2020 counts as a revolution. He says, Only time will tell, of course, and it's still too early in the crisis to know its resolution. But there's no doubt that those deeply involved in the protests of 2020, either for and against them, have seen the shadow of revolution. Many on both sides have even longed for it. Again, though, there are degrees of expression and reaction, sometimes the imagery and symbolism in 2020, like a guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos' house, is simply over the top. At other times, though, the movement in 2020, whether revolutionary or not, has been incredibly subtle and nuanced. But he says only time will tell. Bradley Berzer is uh, the American conservative scholar at large. He is the author of this piece, uh, which was uh, first published in the Imaginative Conservative. And again, there will be a link to this in the show notes, which you can check out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. When we come back from our break, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about how the Swedes have destroyed the case for resorting to extreme measures to deal with coronavirus. Now, for me, this is really good news. The only frustrating thing is that uh, we still have a lot of political leaders and, and other bureaucrats here in America who, for whatever reason, just can't seem to bring themselves to, to consider that maybe there's some way other than these extreme measures to handle this virus. I have an article that I'll be sharing. This is uh, from uh, Christopher Snowden, written for spikedonline.com. And I think he's right on. All those predictions of mass death never came to pass for Sweden, even though they didn't lock down, even though they didn't mandate masks, even though they didn't mandate social distancing. They didn't destroy their economy. And yet somehow the people figured out how to protect themselves. And in doing so, they made it very clear, hey, we can manage the virus without resorting to extreme measures. Again, this is a lesson that uh, clearly uh, some folks here in uh, the United States and other places need to learn. But I fear that their addiction to power right now is so strong, they're not really interested in the message. So, we'll come back with uh, Mr. Snowden's article, Just the Other Side of These Messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. That would be my friend John Staples. And look, if you are in the market for a, for a home loan, whether it's to go out and buy a new home loan, maybe you just want to get pre-qualified so you can start shopping, talk to John and his wife, Heather, the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They're very easy to find. You go to their website, you'll find all the contact information you need to get you started. Again, their, their website is Staples mortgage.com couldn't be easier staplesmortgage.com that's the staples turner team at patriot home mortgage 23 states strong and ready to help you either refinance your existing mortgage or get that mortgage for your new home get in touch with them today let's talk about sweden and how sweden has destroyed the case for lockdown. this is an article from spiked online by christopher snowden he says if you speak of the swedish no lockdown approach to COVID-19 without disparagement. A horde of midwits will descend on you to say that actually, Sweden had a large number of COVID-related deaths compared to its immediate neighbors. And though you can explain that Sweden had a lower death rate per million people than the UK, they will insist you only compare Sweden to the rest of Scandinavia. But he says you don't need to compare Sweden to any country to make the crucial observation that lockdowns are not necessary. Lockdowns were introduced because it was believed that they were the only way to prevent cases spiraling out of control, leading to most of the population being infected, health services being overwhelmed, and 0.5 to 1% of the population potentially dying of the disease. Now, he says this was not an unreasonable prediction when it was first made. The, the coronavirus is highly infectious and several times more lethal than the flu. Case numbers were growing exponentially in March, as were deaths, and Neil Ferguson's Imperial College model predicted over 250,000 deaths in Britain without lockdown, even with some social distancing measures. But when academics adapted Ferguson's model to Sweden, it predicted 96,000 deaths by the end of June. Ferguson himself said on 80, April 25th, that Sweden's daily deaths would increase day by day. It is clearly a decision for the Swedish government whether it wishes to tolerate that. In fact, the daily number of deaths had already peaked by then, barely a week after they peaked in Britain, and the cumulative total currently stands at less than 6,000. The point here is when a prediction is that far off, it should command attention. Let's remember how the Swedish approach was reported at the time. A Guardian headline said on March 30th, They are leading us to catastrophe. Sweden's coronavirus stoicism begins to jar. The Sun on April 1st said Sweden's refusal to enter coronavirus lockdown, leaving schools and pubs open, will, quote, lead to catastrophe, doctors warn. And Time magazine warned on April 9th that Sweden's relaxed approach to the coronavirus could already be backfiring. The report also quoted a head doctor at a major hospital in Sweden saying the current approach will probably will probably end in a historical massacre. Now, various post hoc justifications have been put forward for why things didn't turn out as expected. Since none of them was mentioned by the doomsters back in March, 
you have to wonder whether this eagerness to show that there's something special and unique about Sweden reflects a genuine yearning for the truth or a pathological desire to promote lockdown at all costs. The most stupid of these excuses is that, well, Sweden has a low population density, 59 people per square mile. The author says, forgive me for insulting your intelligence, but it seems some people need to hear this. Swedish people are not evenly spread out across the country. Scotland also has a low population density, 65 people per square mile, because most of the country is wilderness. This has not, not stopped Glasgow from becoming a COVID-19 hotspot. The country with the highest per capita death rate from COVID is Peru, which has a population density only slightly higher than Sweden with 65 people per square mile. Brazil and Chile have also had more deaths per capita than Sweden, despite having low population densities of 65 and 60 people per square mile, respectively. Like Sweden, these countries have vast areas in which nobody lives. There is no reason to think that this should help combat the coronavirus. It's not as if everyone in Sweden lives in little villages, either. 88% of the Swedes live in urban areas. This compares with 84% in the UK, 78% in Peru, and 81% in Spain. Sweden is one of the most urbanized countries in Europe. The second post hoc explanation is, well, the Swedes actually did lock down, but voluntarily. Now, unless you have a very loose definition of lockdown, this is simply untrue. Here's a typical report from The Guardian in late March. Quote, outdoors couples stroll arm in arm in the spring sunshine. Malmo's cafe terraces do a brisk trade. On the beach and surrounding parkland at Sibarp, there were picnics and barbecues this weekend. The adjoining skate park and playground were rammed. No one was wearing a mask. And here's Time magazine in April. When Chloe Fu, age 24, went on a run Monday evening, the streets of Stockholm were filled with people drinking on restaurant patios, enjoying the first warm day of sunshine after a long winter. When you walk around, there is total and utter absence of panic, Fu says, who moved to Sweden from the United States last year. The streets are just as busy as they would have been last spring. End quote. Now, this kind of stuff was filmed for TV news reports. There's no denying it. There's no point in denying it, rather. Life was relatively normal in Sweden compared to the countries that locked down. Now, that's not to say that people didn't make changes. There was plenty of social distancing and working from home. Gatherings of more than 50 people were banned, and children aged 16 to 18 no longer went to school. But the crucial point is, this was sufficient to help prevent exponential growth of transmission. It did not require a lockdown. But the lockdown aficionados protest, well, Sweden still had many more deaths than its Nordic neighbors. And this is true. Sweden typically has 90,000 deaths a year. It looks like it will have at least 6,000 deaths from COVID-19 this year. Now, some of those who died would have died this year anyway, but some would not have. And the author says, I've never heard a compelling reason why Sweden can only be compared to other Scandinavian countries. What is it about the Nordics that gives them special protection from COVID-19? Salty fish? Elk? He says, this pandemic is a marathon, not a sprint. The Swedes always anticipated that they would see a higher rate of mortality in the spring and summer than countries which locked down early. The argument against lockdown was that every country would see a similar number of deaths in the long run and that it wasn't worth disrupting people's lives and livelihoods in an extreme way by quarantining the entire population. Perhaps the Northern Hemisphere will keep the virus under control this winter and not enact extreme measures again, but it's only September and cases are rising while new restrictions are being added. 
Christopher Snowden concludes by saying there's a world of difference between locking down because it's the only way to prevent the digging of mass graves and the collapse of your health service and locking down because it might prevent your annual annual mortality figures being 5 to 10% higher than an average year. Given the immense cost of lockdown and the knowledge that it only delays the problem, he says the latter is a much harder sell. One final thought here in the closing moments. Uh, this is an article from, Paul, from uh, Thomas L. Knapp, and I thought this was interesting just because he has the take that COVID-19 panic is the new state religion. Panic, he says, not science, continues to drive the public policy discussion. So here it is, such as it is, the current science. If 100,000 Americans age 19 or younger contract COVID-19, three of them will die. If 10,000 Americans between 20 and 49 years of old contract COVID-19, two of them will die. If 1,000 Americans between 50 and 69 years of age contract COVID-19, five of them will die. But if you're 70 and older and contract COVID-19, your chances of dying skyrocket to about 1 in 20. Now, these are the best estimates of COVID-19 infection fatality ratios published by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And Thomas Knapp says, if the CDC's estimates are correct, and if I had a nickel for every time I've had to heard, hear, I've heard, listen to the experts, he says, I'd need a bigger house to store my nickels in. A COVID-19 infection is less likely than a seasonal flu infection to kill anyone under 70. Now, there's a caveat, of course. CDC estimates COVID-19's RO, the average number of people infected, uh, and an infected person infects in turn, rather, at 2.5, while seasonal flu's RO runs about half that. So COVID-19 spreads more quickly and more easily than the flu. More cases equals more deaths. And there's an excuse. These are the numbers we have now, not the numbers we had when the pandemic hit. What we had then was uncertainty. But he says uncertainty isn't a very good excuse for shutting down portions of the U.S. economy, especially significant portions, driving unemployment up from 1 in 25 American workers to 1 in 7. It's still nearly 1 in 10, and of course placing most, much of the population under house arrest. When we didn't know what was going on, panic wasn't the correct answer. Now that we have a better idea of what's happening, holding on to these visible vestiges of panic isn't the correct answer either. It's just a new state-imposed religion. And I think it's a fair comparison, given how dogmatic people have become with adhering to what the experts, the high priests of COVID, are telling them. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.